0: Hello, I'm Bruce McGeckin. My guest for this show is Ian Frame, the retired CEO of Rangatera Investments, a long-term private equity firm. In this episode, we discuss all things private equity, including their fees, their investors and their strategies, the difference between classic private equity firms and long-term private equity firms, what sort of investments they're after and their investment horizon, A bit about stock market crashes, a bit about venture capital and angel investing, and much more. Hello, I'm Bruce McGeckin, and this is the Curious Kiwi Capitalist Podcast. Firstly, what is private equity?
1: Well, in New Zealand, private equity really falls into... Probably three categories, actually. Um, the first, are, there are a number of private equity firms that go and raise capital from, uh, uh, from superannuation funds and, uh, um, and other large institutional parties. And uh, they will invest that money on their behalf. Uh, they take a management fee, and uh, usually they have to pay the funds back within five or seven or ten years. The second category are those that invest similarly, but they have their own equity, and I'm talking about the rangatira's, the tot capital, those family funds, mm. and um, most of them will have maybe up to 200 million uh, of funds to invest, and they invest longer term. They don't have to repay the money; they can afford to hold onto it right out the cycles. The third category is really, uh, in New Zealand there are a large number of family businesses and that includes virtually all of the farming sector um, that uh, are run based on capital provided by the family and the money that they've accumulated from those uh, companies over the years.
0: In the case of the first category, the what I'd call perhaps erroneously as a classic private equity firm, though they would have the limited partners, the superannuations, uh, the, the endowments, perhaps, wealthy families and individuals. And they would invest that money into a fund and then the private equity uh, firm would get a, a management fee and a performance fee. What's the management fee and performance fees that they tend to get?
1: Well, they, they vary and... Uh... Um, But generally speaking they would take a 2% uh, fee per annum on the funds invested and then they will uh, take a percentage, uh, like 20% of the gain over and above a fixed return. So the fixed return may be 8% per annum. So they have to achieve that um, over the life of the investment. And then if there's a surplus above that, then they will take that. So that's what's known as a two plus 20 arrangement. There were, there have been times when that's been common. There have been times when that's been under pressure. Mm. Uh, where it sits right today, I'm not hundred percent sure, but it, mm. it's probably around that. Mm.
0: And they, that firm will have different funds. Uh, how long do those funds tend to last? Well, they
1: raise them on the basis that they have to be repaid within a certain period of time. And that period of time uh, will invariably be longer than five years, but less
0: or at a maximum 10 years. Mm-hmm. So if they invest in a company in year zero or year one, they need to sell their company by year 10. Yeah, and
1: sure. And they don't. Uh, they raise their money first, and then they uh, then they look to invest those funds. So it may take them two or three years to find something to invest in. So often uh, they are having to sell within seven years maximum because it's taken them three years to find that business to invest in.
0: Now we'll get to to more permanent capital soon, rather than the limited life of a of a fund. But while they've raised fund, let's call it fund one, and they've deployed all that capital, do they then go and raise fund two?
1: Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, the successful ones. and um, But it depends on the success of the private equity fund because the more successful they are, the easier it is for them to raise more money. Um, and, and often they'll raise that money from... The investors that invested in the first fund, mm. because they're happy investors and they will uh, put more money in. But yes, they uh, they will continue. That's how they operate. Uh, they they will probably raise a fund every one or two years, maybe maybe longer than that, just depending on on how successful they are mm. and what the market's doing. Mm.
0: And and those investors that are investing into most types of private e- equity, a- including the, the classic PE firm, what are they looking for? They can invest in bonds and, 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 and the stock market. Why why are they investing in this risky private equity thing?
1: Well, it depends on the, uh, on the investor, but the large superannuation funds and uh, institutional funds, for example, insurance companies, they like to have a portfolio of investment. And so they may mark 2% or 5% of their portfolio uh, for higher risk, higher return. And that's where uh, private equity probably isn't the highest risk, highest return, but it is certainly at the more higher risk, higher return end of the scale.
0: What's the difference between um, private equity firms and, and uh, long, long-term private equity firms?
1: Yeah, the, the short-term private equity firms uh, get their money from institutions and they invest on their behalf. So they act a bit like a broker in that they are making the decisions but they're not making the decisions with their funds. And so they are investing on behalf of somebody else. Um, the long-term investors, private equity investors, like Rangatera, are investing their own funds, their own equity. So they don't have to worry about looking after the investors, and they can invest for as long as they like. (laughs) Uh, And Rangatera, for example, uh, does invest long-term. It has one company I'm aware of that they've been invested in for the best part of 50 years, and they always... um, they always co-invest with someone that knows how to run the business. Mm. So those long-term funds often will only take a 50% uh, share maximum mm. and the other 50% to be held by those that know how to run the business. They also, when Rangitura, uh invests, it doesn't need to have an exit strategy. That's a key difference between the long-term private equity investors and the Short to medium term ones.
0: Going back to the the classic private equity firm, uh, when they've reached the end of their fund, what options do they have? Uh, they obviously they could go through a normal M and A process to find other other buyers. Uh, do they have other options outside of just straight out selling the uh, the, the company? Because
1: yeah, well, basically they've got to sell. Um, although they are raising further funds. Mm. So they may raise a new fund every two or three years. Um, It is a possibility for them to sell that investment, may not be mature yet, into the next fund. They have to be very careful in doing that. Mm. Uh, Usually they would want to bring in some independent party to audit that process and audit the price. Mm. But um, that does happen. and. Generally speaking, they set out to have an exit strategy from day one and they will work continuously on that exit strategy uh, through the investment period.
0: When you're looking at the the longer-term private equity companies, what sort of turnover of investments do they tend to have if it's up to 10 years for a, a classic private equity firm and it's, it's more longer term for the oranguteras of the world. How long on average is longer term?
1: Okay, the, um, the long-term private equity firms in New Zealand are generally what I would call in the emerging growth sector. Mm. So they invest in businesses that are probably turning over a minimum of Say 10 or 12 million dollars per annum. That's like a million dollars per month. Mm -hmm. And they look to grow them to 50, 100 million, 150 million dollars of turnover. (laughs) Now, in some cases, they may be able to achieve that in five to 10 years. In some cases, it takes longer. And then they Generally speaking, do not have to sell, so they do not have an exit strategy, they just believe that if they keep adding value to the business, then sooner or later, um, there will be an exit opportunity for them, but if they don't have to sell because they've invested their own private equity, then they can continue to hold. So they always sell well, they never have to sell. Mm at any particular point in time, and they can wait until they have added as much value as they possibly can to that business, and the market conditions are right, Uh, there are a number of interested buyers, and they can play the market, and usually do very well with their exits. The short-term private equity firms are forced often to sell at a certain point in time, and so they have to really work hard to make sure that they have got suitable strategic buyers lined up. And there are cases where they just have to cut their losses and get out because they've got to realise their funds, they haven't had time to achieve what they expected to achieve, and uh, they're under pressure to exit at an inconvenient time in the market.
0: During the time the the classic firms are holding the investments, those investments would be probably distributing dividends. In the case of longer term private equity firms uh, who are holding those investments for 20, 30, 40 years, they are taking those dividends. In the case of Rangatera, how did they distribute the the dividends? Because Rangatera is actually unlisted, so to speak. Yes.
1: Well, Arangatira acts very much as if it is a listed company. Um, it its shares do actually trade on the unlisted platform, uh, which, while it's called unlisted, it is actually uh, it is actually a listed platform, (laughs) Um, and uh, it's just not uh, it's not the uh, doesn't have all the formal compliance requirements of the main stock exchange. But um, they do carry on like a uh, listed company and they do pay dividends, they declare dividends every year and they pay dividends and, uh, and traditionally those dividends have been quite good. See, Rangatira itself is about two-thirds owned by charitable trusts mm. and uh, many of those charitable trusts are depend- dependent on the income that comes from Rangatira. So, uh, yeah, it's a bit like a superannuation fund that pays a, a steady or steadily increasing dividend from um, its shares. Now, it will receive income, it will receive cash from its investments to be able to pay those dividends. And from time to time, it does sell some of its investments and it receives cash from that. So, Rangitira, if you have a look at its uh, its balance sheet, is actually at the moment fairly flush with cash. No problem of paying dividends.
0: Hmm. I don't suppose that it would ever do a extraordinary dividend payout based off that cash, or getting into the internal machinations of a of, of the company. Or must it invest it in well, other companies?
1: theoretically, they probably should, but. Practically, when you've got charitable trusts uh, holding two thirds of your shares, you really want to provide them with steady income. They don't know how right. to handle large dollops of additional income. <laughs> right. So there's a bit of a practical issue there with Rangitira itself, yeah. but. Um, they, they tend to manage that by perhaps paying higher dividends than they may otherwise do, but keeping them steady or steadily increasing year on year. Hmm.
0: What other companies like Rangatera are in New Zealand? I, I mean, It stands out because it's on the unlisted board and, and therefore there is public information about it, including the annual report. We don't know much about Todd Capital. Uh, and there are other family firms that I guess are private equity and, and structure. Do, do we know of many others that are are long-term firms?
1: No, We uh, when I was running Rangatera, we didn't come across too many that were mm. in the same category. Uh, Todd Capital was there. Um, K1W1, which is a mm. Tyndall family company, is quite active. Um But generally speaking, uh, there were no others that we came across on a regular basis. The parties we did come across were the, uh, what you call classic PE firms, which are the ones that get their funds from others and invest on that basis.
0: Going back to when you were first involved uh, in the, the whole private equity sector, what changes have you seen from your early knowledge of the sector through to when you exited
1: oh that's a that's a massive question because it 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 changes it changes all the time yeah. every year the markets are different uh and and every decade uh has basically had a different strategy uh and it's been going for seventy probably closer to eighty years now so it's it's probably in its lifetime had eight different major strategies. Huh. Uh, what causes that is that when I first got involved with Frangatira, it was um, about 2004, and it was a good time to acquire uh, companies. We were looking to acquire 50% of what I would call by New Zealand standards, medium-sized businesses, turning over 20, 30, 40 million dollars, and then growing those to be much larger. Investing in private equity is not too different from investing in, in, a, in a rental property in the, in the suburbs. You've got to buy right, you've got to develop it right, and then you've got to ultimately sell it right. <laughs> And if you don't do the first one right, like buy right, uh, you pay too much for it, you'll never make money on the second two <laughs> steps. <laughs> so you have to be able to buy private equity at the right price. At the moment the private equity market uh, price is being paid uh, what I would call high. <laughs> and that does make it difficult for the long-term players. The short term players, shorter term players can be in and out and still make a dollar, but you wouldn't want to be caught with an in and out strategy if uh, there's a major downturn in the markets, like the global financial crisis, and
0: you have to sell. The price of a business is often expressed by multiple, of course, a multiple of probably EBITDA. And if we're at the height of the market right now, or- Back in 2007, um, back when you were at Orangutera, you were at the height of the market uh, back then again, 12 years before what might be the, the peak now, who, who really knows a, a new world, I, I guess, every day. Uh, what what was the multiples that you were being offered at the height of the market versus the, the bottom of the market?
1: Yeah. A good market, to my mind, would be, and it depends on the sector that you're in. But um, you know, we're talking about companies that may be turning over, say, fifteen or twenty million dollars. Um, so you're not paying a premium for size, and they probably haven't got a strong market presence, but there's ability to develop that. Uh, you, you could perhaps pick them up at the right times for four times EBITDA. Mm. Um, maybe three and a half to four and a half, mm. depending on the sector that they're in. At at the peak of the market, uh, those figures will be double that. that will mm. be seven, eight, nine times EBITDA. And there's not much... Um, Room for downside and those sorts of prices. Mm. Mm. (laughs) Well, there's plenty of room for downside, but there's not much, uh, there's not much attraction for the investor, uh, at those sorts of prices. You've got to work really hard to do a whole lot more than just buy and, and modify and sell. You've got to actually have a major growth strategy to go with it. And that usually involves pulling a number of different companies together. I mean, I saw a company recently that was turning over about $15 million purchased and, and the acquirers paid a very high multiple. And, you know, in the category that I was talking about. And they had, the acquirer had a major strategy to use this acquisition as a core. For, uh, accumulation of a lot of the companies in that sector. Mm. So you've got to, uh, have major growth strategies, uh, if you want to be playing in that, in that, uh, shorter term private equity game. Of course, the players, uh, the longer term players can afford to wait. Uh, they can afford to sit on their money and wait for the right opportunity to come along. They're under under the same pressure to go out and invest when the market's at its peak. So they are quite different, really, in many ways, those those two categories of player in the market. Of course, when they come head-to-head, the more aggressive, shorter-term players uh, will often often win. So the longer-term players have to work on other factors, such as there may be a family that doesn't want to commit to an exit strategy. They're just happy to sell half the business and have a long-term growth strategy for the next generation.
0: <laughs> so we have the three factors of buying low, selling high, being one and three, I guess. And the second factor being growing the, the profitability or mm. um, size of the company. You talked about one Strategy there of a roll-up, I'd call it, uh, hmm. um, or having a plat- thir- the first platform company and bolting on hmm. additional, perhaps smaller, perhaps same size companies to that to grow it. Uh, what other growth uh, strategies are there that, that you look at?
1: Well, uh, well, if you if you've got a consumer brand, for example, and it's not well known, and you can make it famous throughout New Zealand, perhaps Australia, maybe global, um, you can increase your multiple Hmm. a lot. So if you are increasing the EBITDA and you're increasing the multiple because you're actually uh, creating brand value, um, you can get a double whammy on growth. Hmm. And
0: that's when you really make money in private equity. Hmm. And one of the... The so shorter term firms, Um, focus on, on export markets. That's, hmm. they want to take New Zealand firms international. So that's, I guess that's a core part of their growth, hmm. uh, strategy.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, there's also the strategic aspect because, uh, a lot of the technology companies are trying to, uh, particularly SaaS companies are trying to develop a strategic value that a large player offshore would want to acquire. But you have to get to a certain point. I mean, Trade Me was a good example. Yes. Um, Zero is a good example as well. They basically uh, made themselves that well-known that either somebody had to pay a high price to acquire them, which happened with Trade Me, or uh, people were prepared to pay a high price to uh, uh, to acquire them, which underpinned the share market, the share price for um, for, for zero,
0: mm. and in the case of zero, especially it had international venture capital underpinning its early years.
1: Well, they were able to attract that. I think once they had got to the point where they had demonstrated their strategic importance, I think that came first. I think Rod Drury saw that there was a market for uh, turning these accounting packages into a SaaS product. And he he stole a march on the other players with that, MYOB and uh, QuickBooks. He stole a march on them. That then gave him a really good strategic value. And it was at that point that the Americans started to invest in it. And... Uh, but he had to prove that strategic value first.
0: You talked before about a size premium uh, and that uh, the mid-market firms didn't have a large size premium. What, in the case of New Zealand, where does company size start to increase the value of of the company?
1: Uh, it depends a bit on the sector that you're in, but generally speaking, I would call uh, anything under $15 million of turnover, a small company in New Zealand, mm-hmm. uh, $15 million to $100 million of turnover, maybe a bit less, would be medium. And anything over that, over a hundred million of turnover is a large company by New Zealand standards. So that, I think those, uh, boundaries, because don't forget, if you convert New Zealand dollars to US dollars, those figures are all smaller again. I don't think in the United States they would have the same, uh, categories. Uh, the numbers would be much higher. Mm. You know, a large, company in the U.S. is going to be a lot more than $60 million U.S. dollars of turnover. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what, though, from a private equity perspective, I find very interesting is whether they treat themselves, manage themselves as a small or medium or large size company. Uh, I mean, take Gallagher in New Zealand. I don't know what their turnover would be, but it would be certainly in the large company category but they probably still run themselves as a small to medium-sized company. So, that's important I think in New Zealand because if you run as a large corporate in New Zealand, um, it it doesn't work that well. New Zealand does not manage on a large corporate basis very well. So you then have to import chief executives from offshore that know how to run large companies in a large company sort of a way. And uh, and that doesn't work all that well. You pay massive salaries to them and and you don't necessarily get success. The most successful stories in New Zealand are companies uh in the private equity sector this is are companies that think big that operate as if they're a small to medium-sized company.
0: The growth of private equity seems to mirror the decline of the number of listings on the stock market as well. We're seeing this all around the world, uh, especially in the in the US, but the ability for fast-growing companies to stay in the private sector for, for much longer than they, they used to. And there's a lot of angst there seems to be uh, with NZX participants about the the lack of IPOs and what they're doing wrong. I'll look at that review that they're doing with a great deal of interest, but I wonder if they're doing anything wrong at all. It's just the market. The market's changed.
1: Yeah, New Zealanders uh, like to have control of their investments. It's interesting, I mean... Um, you know, we've had some terrible stories in New Zealand in the finance sector. Uh, large amounts of money have been lost, uh, both in publicly listed shares and non bank uh, finance mm. corporations. Some terrible, terrible stories, and even through to uh, private investor advice, and Ponzi schemes. I mean, you know, terrible stories. So it's not surprising that New Zealanders are very canny about where they put their money, and and that actually uh, it, it leads to a lot of people investing in property. So they feel with property they can own property. The banks are more comfortable lending to people on property. They can take <laughs> personal guarantees uh, to secure those loans, etc., etc. So. The, it does make it difficult for uh, um, in the private equity market. If people are going to invest into it, they often prefer to either control the business themselves or know the person that controls it or be involved so that they have some direct co- control themselves. And when they do that, they find that it operates pretty well. Uh, and they would prefer to keep it privately owned. Mm. Why would they want to go to the market and have other people dictating how they manage and operate? It's just a quirk of the New Zealand market.
0: The extent of our residential property investment certainly is a heck of a quirk uh, to have too. Uh, the amount of money that's been diverted away from the productive sector into selling houses to each other seems to be the, to be one of the tragedies of the capital markets
1: well it is but the capital markets really in New Zealand can only blame themselves um, or maybe they can blame the politicians for being too weak in terms of legislating hmm. but the scandals that have occurred in the uh, in the finance sector uh, And in the share market. I mean, 1987, there were a lot, there were a lot of very unsubstantial companies that were trading at very high prices, Mm. all on hype. Mm. And of course, when the crash came, uh, they were, those companies were exposed to what they were. And the people behind them were exposed to what they were. But how many people went to jail for it? I think there might have been one, Alan Hawkins. And, uh, And and a lot of the other cowboys uh, came back into the market uh, within the next 10 years and everyone forgot about it. So we also have had the global financial crisis recently and through that period the non-bank financial sector, 67 finance companies went under. I don't think there were basically any substantial Uh, finance companies in New Zealand survived that. And the uh, government finally uh, went and put some legislation in after that, which hopefully has uh, solved that problem, but you can't blame the vast majority of New Zealanders feeling nervous about giving their money to somebody else to invest on their behalf. Yes. They would much prefer to invest it themselves in their own name. Uh, And the best way to do that is uh, to buy property. So unfortunately, because the vast majority of New Zealand private uh, equity has gone into property, uh, we have got uh, property prices at probably what is an unsustainable level. Uh, I'd like to think it's sustainable, but I'm sure that as soon as interest rates start going back up, property prices will come down. And and that's going to create uh problems of its own. So it would be nice if New Zealanders uh became more confident. No. It would be nice if the New Zealand private equity markets became much more reliable and people gained confidence in them and started to invest in productive enterprise.
0: Let's talk about one area that has grown, and then that is angel investing. I'm not sure how long angel investing's actually been around. It's no doubt it's been around for many years and with, the, with the, many decades with a different term used, but it's shown remarkable growth. Uh, and you've had something to do with this early stage investing as, as well, I think, Ian.
1: Yeah, since I left uh, Rangatera, uh, five years ago. I have been involved in angel investing in New Zealand and that uh, that is developing and it's developing well. The reality of what it is though is it's a group of people who get together and they are prepared to perhaps put 5% of their portfolio uh, into higher risk, higher return investments. And they get together in angel groups uh, because... So, they can share the knowledge of other people in those groups and they can combine their funds and co invest with these other people. So, angel investing uh, is filling a gap in the New Zealand market. It's certainly at a much earlier stage than, it's earlier stage investing than private equity. And yeah, that is taking off pretty well.
0: Angel investing has certainly taken off. In the recent budget, we're recording this in July 2019, so the May 19 budget, filled a gap, a funding gap they called it, or well, they said they're going to fill a funding gap in venture capital. I've heard this a number of times, that angel investing is reasonably strong, certainly compared to how it used to be. Private equity is strong, but there's a stage almost in between that, of venture capital. Where are we at with the venture capital side of things?
1: Yeah, venture capital is not strong in New Zealand. Uh, It's strong in the United States. Uh, It's pretty strong, probably very strong actually in Australia. But New Zealand, uh, it just hasn't taken off. And I think it's because there isn't the expertise to undertake it. In many ways, it is even more risky than angel investing and certainly more risky than private equity investment. The reason for that is simply the amount of money that's required for venture capital. With angel investing, uh individuals can put up tens of thousands of dollars maybe and and that's not a large amount of money for a lot of people to risk whereas once it gets to venture capital, the venture the companies are looking for Uh, millions of dollars and so you need a party that can come in with a few millions of dollars and put into that investment. And that money isn't easily raised in New Zealand. You can get it from uh, institutions but they're increasingly concerned about the criteria under which that uh, money is invested, and the and you can get it from private individuals, but also they they recognise that venture capital is probably the riskiest part of the whole cycle, simply because it's still the companies are still high risks that are being invested in, but the amount of money required is much higher than for angel investing,
0: and that's the big difference. Angel investing being what I'd call seed, yeah. uh, the the very early stages, a good idea and a good person who's Implementing that idea well enough to yeah. to get angel investors. The big change in risk, as you say, is the level of money required to to help it achieve its growth objectives. Seems uh, need to get to the bottom of why we don't have so many uh, venture capital firms. There, there mm. seems to, I mean, Jenny Morales, the Number Eight Wire, uh, seemed to be doing well there, and uh, it closed out its fund, and, and she hasn't raised another fund though. It continues to help out. Uh, companies Mm. through more go, um, meetings, conferences. Uh, We've got Stephen Tindall. uh, We've got Movac and Wellington. uh, We've got Lance Wiggs' Pernakaiki Fund. Mm. I I, I struggle after that. Uh, I think the reason
1: why we don't have a lot of venture capital funds in New Zealand is because it takes a lot of expertise Mm. to run them. And I don't believe that we have that expertise in New Zealand. I think we're very thin on the ground. Uh, By the time you go to Australia, uh, there are a number of people there that have gained their experience, perhaps offshore, and are living in Australia now. Or they've learned, uh, they've learned their expertise in Australia. In New Zealand, there are only a handful of people, I think, that know how to do it. And some of those that are in the market doing it uh, probably didn't have the expertise when they started out, but have mm. developed it since.
0: Mm. It's almost a horse and cart thing, I guess. You you need to either have worked for a venture capital firm, or you have uh, developed a grown a a, a company, and you have exited the company, and now you have capital. In both those cases, you have the experience and knowledge. And so you can start a VC firm with confidence but without a large group of companies that a large group of entrepreneurs have exited their their companies. We don't have a large group of people that can start up VC firms. Almost a bit of that.
1: No, and often people that have started their own firms and uh, developed them and successfully sold out often they don't actually have the skills Mm. to go and run um, venture capital activities which cross a much wider market sector. Mm. People that have started their own firms often uh, know that industry, know that sector, got lucky with some people that they brought on board, so they had a great team. And can't repeat it elsewhere. It's one of the reasons why I have enormous respect for Richard Branson. He's one of the few people that seems to have been able to be successful in one sector and go to another. <laughs> but venture capital is like an early form of private equity. It's taking it's transitioning those companies that have gone beyond seed capital and angel investment. It's picking up the ones that have got really good prospects, but then developing them into strong private equity companies. And that takes a complete range of skills across a complete range of industry sectors. And when I say a complete range of skills, you've got to have financial skills, you've got to have people skills, you've got to have market knowledge, and you've got to know how to add value. Hmm. You've got to know strategically what adds value. And I, in my working career, have seen very few people that have been able to do that in the New Zealand market.
0: Let's talk a bit about you. Before you joined Rangaterra, what was your career path? Where did you start and how did you get into into private equity?
1: Um, I originally graduated in civil engineering. Um, I liked engineering, but I I found it two dimensional, and I wanted to get into management, which I saw as three dimensional. <laughs> and uh, so I was in the in my mid twenties. I was in the United Kingdom, and I uh, and I went and did an MBA back before anyone in New Zealand had heard of MBAs and then i came back to new zealand and uh and and people were very suspicious of anyone with two degrees and <laughs> and so i had to work my way back up through so i got into um, back into management in the construction industry and did a lot of large projects uh, around the pacific and in new zealand and managed those but i was happy because i was managing rather than doing pure engineering yeah. An opportunity then came up to join uh, the Development Finance Corporation. And that was back when they were doing a very good job. They were set up by Rob Muldoon and the national government uh, to fill a gap. The gap being that the banks would not lend any capital or any funds where the capital was at risk. and. It needed some party to come in and step in and 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 plug that gap. And DFC, uh, despite the fact they got criticised a bit for uh, for acting too much like bankers and taking too much security on everything, they did actually uh, fulfil a very needed, much needed service. Yes. Uh, and a lot of people that came out of that uh, did interesting things after that. You know, I was there at the beginning of the 1980s. And through the 1980s, with the major restructuring that took place after uh, RoGenomics, or as part of RoGenomics, a lot of those DFC people were playing very active roles in terms of transitioning the New Zealand economy. So after that, I got involved in change management. And from the mid-80s through to the year 2000, there was an enormous amount of restructuring took place in the New Zealand market. And I'm talking about restructuring of businesses because they were largely asset-based and uh, were largely cost-focused. Their pricing policies were all cost-plus and they needed to learn how to, uh, how to be market-focused and price on a market basis rather than a cost plus. So uh, there was a lot of uh, corporate restructuring took place and I uh, participated in all that. Through to the early 2000s uh, when I uh, went to Rangitira, <laughs> And that was a dream job really because that was putting all my previous experience together and running a private equity firm. <laughs> part of that uh, restructuring, corporate restructuring that I did was done with uh, what was uh, Renoff Corporation and Helleby Holdings at the time. And um, we would we would buy into companies that were struggling after after Rogennomics. Or as a result of Roger And we would, uh, we would close down what we had to close down. We would realize assets where we had to realize assets. But we would pick the best parts of it that had a future. And a lot of those companies are trading very strongly to this day. Repco Corporation, for example, uh, is trading very well today. So, yeah, it was, um, it was a very interesting and very satisfying, uh, period because New Zealand needed it. Mm. New Zealand would not be the vibrant free market economy that it is today if it hadn't done all that major restructuring from 85 through to 2000. Mm.
0: We're, we're sitting in your beautiful Taranaki house looking down over rolling farmland towards the sea. Uh, you then, after Rangaterra moved up here, I think, is that right, or have I missed out a section?
1: Yeah, it took me a couple of years to get here, but um, I knew Taranaki was good. I I love looking out the window and seeing green, productive farmland. Uh, <laughs> it does my heart good. A lot of my friends have gone to live in central Otago, where you look out the window and it's barren, barren, barren. <laughs> rabbits, rabbits, rabbits. <laughs> And, uh, and rabbits running around. Uh, I look out and see beautiful green pasture and dairy cows fattening by the day.
0: Thank you very much for your time. You're uh, welcome. Much appreciated. Very, very interesting. And uh, I, um, I look forward to getting this one out. Good. Thanks so much.
1: Yeah, I'll oh, scrape this. Great.
0: All opinions expressed by podcast guests and myself, are solely our own opinions and do not express the opinion of anyone else. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. See you next time.